28 minutes it is before the uh, top of the hour there. You tuned into Metro FM Talk with myself, Ayabong Atawe, here on Metro FM. I'd love to hear your perspectives. Give me a ring on 089 110 3377. All of you born in 1994, give me a ring and uh, let me know. You can also send me a tweet on at Metro FM SA. You can also tweet me at AYKAW and the name there on the Twitter. Would love to hear from you. We are now going to a conversation where we take stock of uh, certainly the last 25 years. Uh, and of course, uh, over the weekend, we celebrated Freedom Day and a uh, day commemorating uh, the first opportunity in the history of this country for a wide cross section of uh, South Africans to uh, exercise their democratic rights. And uh, uh, let's uh, think back, of course, uh, to uh, what happened at that time. And uh, take a listen to this particular news report from the time ca- coming in 10 days before the 1994 elections. Take a listen. I'm joined in studio by uh, Trevor Ngwane, Bob Ngwane. And uh, let me first also uh, greet you and uh, greet uh, Tazni Mesop on the line and Seattle Mapiniza all the way out in Abidjan. Uh, Bob Ngwane, let me start off with you. Uh, you, you. You were chuckling there while uh, Tata was speaking. Uh, interesting, of course, that um, the report speaks to the fact that uh, very few people have water, electricity, and uh, by the sound of things, I mean, uh, not much has changed in the last 25 years. Yeah, well, um, some things have changed. I mean, you know, like we are now going for an election. Remember, under apartheid, you know, black people are not allowed to vote. I think there is uh, a degree of uh, freedom of expression, which is why I can, you know, talk my mind tonight. Mm. Yeah, so there have been advances, and I think those advances because of the struggles of ordinary people, of the working class, of the poor. Of course, they raised Tata Mandela as the symbol, you know, as the leader. But I think largely those struggles were by ordinary people, uh, the youth of 1976 uh, in Sharpville, etc. So things have changed. But certainly, you know, having no water, living in a shack, you know, can actually jade your view of freedom. Mm. So I think for the majority of people, they are not celebrating 25 years. You know, when they think of freedom, they think of what they have not won rather than what they have gained. Mm. Tasneem, let me bring you in here. And uh, would you share the sentiment that uh, Trevor is making that many people uh, living in shacks and living in uh, 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 the rural areas uh, without access to some of the services that many of us take for granted would probably have a jaded view of their freedom? Evening, Ayavanga, and to your listeners also. Uh, Definitely, I think so. I think what we've seen is a general trend towards uh, a lot of disillusionment with with South African democracy 25 years in. Um, And I think we're seeing this in the lead-up to elections. We're seeing it in conversations that we have every day. Um, And certainly there is that sense that a lot, and as you said when you opened the show, doesn't seem like much has changed. So although we can point to those you know, civil and political rights. We can point to a few policies here and there of the ruling party and of government that have made lives better, made people's lives better. In 
the general sense is of disillusionment, in, in my opinion. Mm. And, and I mean, is, is that an impatient sense? Because, you know, somebody was saying uh, to me over the weekend as that, uh, you know, 25 years in the life of a person is a very, very uh, a long time. But in the life of a nation, I mean, it is, you know, pales in significance. I mean, is it, is it, though, a short period of time? I mean, if you compare that, as some have done, which I don't necessarily agree with, but, you know, the comparison is made between the number of years that we had apartheid for and, you know, compare that to now 25 years of democracy. And that's one of the com- ways that people used to compare how quickly it is to socially engineer certain things. So I think that's a bit unfair, but at the same time, I think that we can expect that 25 years in, certain things would have changed pretty drastically for mm. the better, right? Um, and for us to still be talking about uh, a really sky-high uh, unemployment rate, to still be talking about poverty, to still be talking about informal settlement, in very much the same way um, is, is, you know, what leads to this kind of idea that things are not happening fast enough. And I tend to agree, it's not unreasonable to say that in 25 years we should be able to point to some really major changes in mm, people's lives. Yeah. Let me let me bring in Siatu Mapiniza here, uh, Director at Political Economy Southern Africa. Many people, Sia, would say that uh, that, you know, it's an indication. It's not something you could, uh, you couldn't have gotten maybe a passport from the Puerto regime, uh, say, uh, 30 years ago to go Ulkenget uh, and go to West Africa. Uh, but uh, I guess from an economic perspective, uh, which is really what, uh, in many instances, this is about, you know, uh, 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 the Guinean revolution, Amilcar Cabral says people, you know, are not fighting for ideas or anything that's in anyone's head. Uh, they're fighting to win material benefits, and some of those material benefits are directly related, or access to them, directly related to the performance of the economy. What do you make of the performance of the South African economy in the last 25 years uh, in responding to, I guess, uh, some of the historic injustices that we've seen? Yes, uh, just to pick up, I think, yeah, definitely uh, you hit the nail on the head there in terms of uh, despite the political transformation and changes that happened in South Africa, legal and otherwise, that opened up the space and reintegrated the black majority into the political space, we still are by and large, uh, to a large extent, excluded, economically speaking. And I was just listening to your conversation earlier on with the informal or Zamazama uh, miners, for example. That is exactly a case in point. If you think of South Africa, historically, the two key sectors that have been driving the economy were the agriculture sector as well as the mining sector. And what we've seen in the post-apartheid period is that um, the sector and the structure of the economy has remained largely the same. Um, and to a large extent, the way in which government operates, whether that be the operations of our SEOs or state-owned enterprises, or even policy in terms of our industrial policy, what government has done has really played within the existing structures of that economy. Mm. So when we talk about supporting the informal sector, there's very little that happens in that regard. But at the same time, the government continues to support the large industrial sector, such as the automotive, to the tune of up to $23 billion per year. Mm. And I think this is also echoed in other areas of policy in terms of our monetary policy. The long discussion about nationalization of our banks, including the, the Reserve Bank, is not necessarily an issue about who owns the bank. It's more an issue about what is the actual role of monetary policy, but also the financial sector broadly in South Africa's um, socioeconomic development yeah. in the post-apartheid period. And what we've seen is that where government has failed in policy, private sector in terms of mm. capital and money has also worked to maintain these sure. inequalities 
at the detriment of the black majority, whether that be through these scams, we come across these mm. 99 rent scams. Let's pause this slightly, Let, Let's pause this slightly. You need to, need to take a spot break quickly. No spot break formed against us shall prosper. And uh, we're trying to, uh, I guess, uh, get our way around those uh, spot breaks. See, yeah, you were making the point certainly about uh, this unchanged structure of the economy and how it's really made people sitting ducks uh, for many of these uh, tricksters and uh, all manner of scams uh, that are seen as get rich quick. Uh, really playing into the desperation of many people from a material perspective. Yes, definitely. And um, so what the government now is trying to do, and it's playing quite a catch-up game, is that it's trying now to regulate how the economy operates. But obviously, as we've seen with uh, the case of our competition policy, the current presence on the law and the way we operate is not enough to open up the space and reduce the barriers to entry and allow smaller players to join the economy or informal sector to also participate because the economy is very formalized. Mm. And then on the side of regulating the financial sector, it's very difficult space to navigate in terms of telling people what to do with their accumulated capital, as we've seen in terms of allocative assets as the policy of the ANC is trying to go in that direction, but also the movement in the discourse to try and expand the mandate of the Reserve Bank beyond just price uh, stability in order to also take into account unemployment, etc., to open up the space for economic participation of the black majority. So I think overall, that is just the sense I get of the economy. The structure hasn't changed Black majority still remains largely excluded. And, you know, it's the challenge of the thing that it's a moving target. And it's also very difficult now to rein in our domestic capital so that it contributes towards our socioeconomic development. I'm in conversation with uh, Siatuma Piniza from Political Economy Southern Africa and Tasnime Esop from uh, Wits University and uh, uh, Dr. Trevor Ngwane from uh, the University of Johannesburg and also activist in his uh, own right. And I guess uh, I'm speaking to all activists. Uh, uh, all three of you are certainly activists in your own right. And uh, uh, Dr. Trevor, uh, certainly the point that Sia is making uh, from the perspective of the expectations that people would have had in 1994 uh, versus what uh, indeed unfolded. Uh, and I think of the moment, certainly in the 2000s, when many of the sort of social movements emerged, treatment action campaigns, struggles around public services, many of which uh, uh, you, know, you, you were intimately involved in. Uh, what, I guess, was the sentiment at that time? Uh, were people saying, look, we managed to achieve the political breakthrough in 1994, but in the absence of uh, being able to turn the lights on, switch on a tap and have some water coming out, uh, many of uh, uh, or much of that freedom then becomes quite empty. Yeah, at the time there was a, a very great sense of betrayal. Because remember, when uh, the NC took over, Mandela was, you know, fronting the election campaign and he was talking about jobs for all, water for all, houses for all, a better life for all. But after two years in government, the ANC changed its policy away from what was called the Reconstruction and Development Program and adopted a pro-big business policy, GIE. So uh, the social movements emerged, you know, contesting this uh, turnaround. Remember, GIE came with privatization, which meant that instead of water for all, it was going to be water for only those who can afford to pay. And also, during the struggle against apartheid, the people in the townships, especially in Soweto, they had won, through struggle, free water, free electricity. So now, when the NC took over, instead of that continuing, the NC started uh, making them to pay. 
Indeed, Mandela came with a program called Masakane, teaching people to pay. And there was all this talk about a so-called culture of uh, entitlement. Mm. Yeah. But uh, free people are entitled to the basics in life. So the social movements emerged out of a sense of frustration and a sense of the ANC has betrayed us. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Tasneem, you know, w- when you look at some of those early movements and the breakthrough- mm. breakthroughs that we've seen, I mean, uh, South Africa now has the largest uh, uh, you know, universal treatment program for HIV and AIDS. On the back of some of those struggles, what, what are some of the other ones that you would think of? Uh, I mean, even uh, the notion of free education and uh, uh, the uh, effective ban on labor brokers has also been an outcome of many struggles that we've seen in the post-apartheid period that uh, I guess remind all of us, you know, that uh, uh, democracy is not a moment or an event, but actually a journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is part of the positive of democracy, which uh, Dr. Mwani was talking about, which is that you know, there's, there is that uh, freedom in some sense, although limited, to protest, to uh, contest these ideas, right? And I think that's on the positive side. But, I mean, on the on the flip side of that is that there has to be struggle in order for these moments to come forward, right? You have to have a feed must fall in order to put free education really centrally on the table when it's something that the governing party and indeed the alliance structures uh, of the governing party, such as SASCO and so on, have been talking about free education for many years, right? So when when you have that context, why is it that you need a mass movement to then uh, bring this, you know, to the center of, of your discussions in government and, and to your center of talking about higher education policy and the future of higher education, right? So it's, it's these moments that, these contentious moments that have to come about in order to push government forward. And what we see is, even at a local level, um, when we're talking about community protests, that again there, uh, communities have to push for just the basics uh, to be adhered to at a local level. So you're talking basic services, you're talking basic uh, you know, levels of corruption needing to be, to be reduced. Um, you're talking unemployment and jobs on a on a on a local level, right? Um, so even on those on on the local level, you have these pushes, um, this pushback from people needing to demand um, against the you know the, the government of the day what is required. So I think the contentious moments for me, the the moments of protest, are extremely important in understanding what's happened in the last 25 years of democracy, right? And how people have really contested. Uh, the the meanings of democracy and the limits of it. Mm. What what meaning, Tasnim, do we make of uh, you know? I guess uh, the widespread nature of those kind of protests. You listen to any traffic report every single morning, and you are going to hear about one road or the other that is closed off due to protest action. Uh, uh, what does that mean about local politics, about local organisation, and in particular about the responsiveness of the state uh, where people are, which is at a local level? Well, I mean, I think it's quite telling that this appears in the traffic report um, and that that's the kind of reporting that we often see about uh, localized uh, and community protests. Look, I think that, look, it's complicated, right? Community protests are complicated um, in in one sense for me um, in that they are very often very closely tied to the ANC um, and the ANC at a local level is often the force that's mobilizing uh, community protests. And I think we saw this most recently with the Alex Alexandra protests and others that uh, sprang up in Gauteng uh, just this month, right? Um, so I think that, that adds a bit of complication to it. But nonetheless, there are always people rising up, 
you know, in communities, there's always this unrest at a local level around these issues. And I think what it what it definitely shows us is that people are unhappy with, with what is happening at a local mm. level. That goes without saying, right? But it also shows us that the way the ways in which government responds to this needs to really be rethought. Um, yeah. And, and, and how that relationship plays out, uh, you know, in, in terms of every community protest that happens, that really there's this lack of consistency and structural changes um, in terms of how things are run at, mm. at a local government level. Yeah. Dr. Nwana, let, let me bring you uh, back in here. We, we're probably going to our fifth president. Uh, and I understand it's, uh, I think, sixth administration uh, that's coming up after uh, after May. Six administrations in and uh, five presidents in. Uh, just your assessment of the different administrations, what legacies they've left, and uh, more importantly, I guess, what the key moments in some of those were. And see, I'll also uh, get uh, on the same question some of your views as well. Dr. Nguyen. Yeah, the first one was the, the dream and the idealism of Nelson Mandela when uh, he took over power. And then the great moment was when uh, the ANC moved away from the pro-poor, pro-working class policies of RDP and turned to gear, you know, pro-big business. And then came in uh, Chabombegi, who made it clear. He said, maybe you should just call me a Thesherite. So he was pushing neoliberal policies. And then after that, uh, there was a lot of uh, dissatisfaction with uh, Chabombegi's uh, policies. And then uh, Jacob Zuma came in uh, on a populist ticket saying that he's going to give the government back to the people and deliver to the needs of the people. But we found out that actually he's just a tool for the self-enriching bourgeoisie inside the ANC. So that was decisive. And then lastly was the coming in of Cyril Ramaphosa, who unfortunately is a billionaire capitalist so he's, you know... Unfortunately for us or him? Uh, unfortunately for the working class, because it means that his view of life is from the point of view of the rich. And in fact, if you look around big business, you know, the white middle class, even parts of the black middle class, they think that Ramaphosa can solve things. I think with Ramaphosa, the best thing about him is that he's not Zuma. So Zuma was so bad that, you know, anything... But in any case, uh, Ramaphosa is clearly saying the first thing he did was to raise VAT. So Ramaphosa is clearly saying that he's going to push a pro-big business agenda. So this is where we are now. Okay. Now, the last point, which is a bit sad, is all this state capture corruption story. So this is really demoralizing the masses. People are now feeling that this government, the people we put in power, are not there to take care of our interests. They are only there to make themselves rich. So there is now loss of hope, loss of trust. And it's hard to move forward without hope. Sia? Yeah, for me, it's mainly around the coordination. I think what sticks out for me throughout these different uh, administrations and the presidents we've had is there hasn't been a very strongly committed and coordinated effort on the part of government. I think that's what uh, strikes are very different from the apartheid regimes. The, the apartheid regimes came, it was, you know, uh, the Group Areas Act, it was a bunch of legislation, it was a shock system, it was all-encompassing. You move people out of livelihoods, you destroy people's livelihoods, you generate, uh, you know, a new class of Afrikaner middle class using the state apparatus. And I'm not seeing that coming through with the ANC-led administration because of either 
state capture, misdirecting state funds that are meant to create or build a black middle class into the private pockets of individuals. On the other hand, our policy has not been very coordinated. On the one hand, you've got government that is trying heavily to invest in the economy in terms of public infrastructure, etc. At the same time, there's the fiscal policy that is driven by consolidation, whilst on the other hand, you've got uh, monetary policy focusing squarely on uh, price stability, mm. when you know the whole system of policies don't necessarily reinforce themselves in the way in which the apartheid system and state machinery operated. And I think that is one of the biggest downfalls is that in as much as we can make some of uh, progress and milestones in achieving free education, for example, and achieving a minimum wage, etc., the target is continuously moving and we're making very minimal or symptomatic um, achievements to deal with issues when, in fact, the target is already moved. Sure. By the time you start to get a policy on black industrialists, you know, capital is in control and they're investing in the rest of the continent, not investing in the real sector, in the economy, mm. serving the economy of jobs. And at the same time, when you are supposed to support these black industrials, they will still remain dependent on trying to get that domestic capital to invest in terms of loans, etc. And so the policy for me is not coherent. Mm. That's one of the big uh, downfalls in that we make a few achievements, but none of them are self-reinforcing. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, and of course, uh, a minute for all of us as uh, we wrap up this conversation, nearing the end now. And uh, Sia, let me maybe start off with you, and Taz will give you the last word on this particular one. But I'm quite interested uh, in the policy uh, mix that uh, Sia has just mentioned, uh, which has really created, uh, I would believe, the most unequal society in the world. Uh, and not only due to lack of coordination, but the interests that it's been able to serve. We've seen over the last day or so, or I should say over the recent while, this re-emergence and resurgence, uh, in particular of the Africana right wing, and um, uh, really, I guess, banding about this notion that there's a genocide in South Africa that is being undertaken to kill uh, white people, and in particular white farmers. It's even gone as far as the White House in the U.S. Uh, in terms of the people they've been trying to lobby behind this particular view. What does that mean and say to us here yeah, about, I guess, the spirit of reconstruction and nation building that we saw in 1994, and whether or not uh, that kind of project has uh, really hit the brakes or not? Sure. I think for me, it's uh, firstly, it's that the road, the road ahead is going to be very difficult. The reason why these are very difficult shifts, uh, for example, if you look at the, the outcry on a, a white genocide, etc., is as a result of the stance taken by the government on uh, our land policy. Mm. And that, to me, is unearthing two of our so-called sunshine industries. Remember, there's the mining and the agriculture. With the mining, it completely failed when you look at the mining chart and how it was meant to open up the space and create socioeconomic development from the sector. Similarly now with the land policy, which is trying to get black people involved, may at least with the government trying to make sure that they're black farmers or they're involved in food production, etc. That is now failing because it's unearthing already existing and monopolized interests that are in that sector. And we're not going to be able to move forward until we get to a point um, where we can both uh, you know, work hand in hand, those with the capital and the, those that need for the space to open up and for the investment to take place domestically. Um, I definitely think that we've got a difficult job ahead of us, mm. uh, but um, these that we're seeing, the outcries, etc., are as a result of this and the need, actually, uh, to open up the space. What's alarming for me is when you look at the world globally, there's this rising talk of socioeconomic justice or economic justice, 
I mean, I just uh, looking at speeches by the newly elected Spanish president who mm. said, you know, Europe's going to be looking at Spain now and their focus is going to be on economic justice. Everywhere else, the focus is on how do we balance sure. the economic growth such that it does uh, reduce inequality, mm. etc. Whereas in South Africa, we've taken a step back and now the discussion is, the point is about recovering the economy. The point is about growth. And for me, that's very reminiscent of the year years where we were able to achieve economic mm. growth, but we weren't sure. able to create jobs. We actually have ended up with a worse situation in terms of inequality and poverty. Sure. And I think the discourse in South Africa needs to graduate above this notion that oh, the problem is the growth story, the okay. growth story, but realize that it's a socioeconomic justice story sure. and everything else is linked to that. So yeah, we'll have to pause it there. Dr. Trevor? Well, we need a, a strategy to a plan to redistribute the wealth and the services. Mm. This is crucial. And I think that we need the communities to continue with their protests, but they have to improve them by uniting and speaking with one voice. Mm. I think we should put in front of the government an emergency program because the suffering, the misery is intolerable. You know, people are really dying in the townships, in the rural areas. So we need an emergency program which the whole of the working class, the unemployed, uh, the youth should combine and demand that government, you must do one, two, three in order to actually help us in our suffering. Mm. Taz, you have the last word. Um, so, I mean, a part of me wants to agree with Dr. Nguyen is uh, this is the politics we need to forge and move forward in that way. And this is in relation to addressing your question about the Africana right wing. I mean, the, the thing I just want to say about this is that we we shouldn't mistake ourselves into believing that the uh, the problems of the Africana right wing are a right wing problem alone in South Africa. Um, that we certainly need to talk more broadly about those perceptions um, and how much deeper they run in South African society. Mm. Um, and then also just that if we're talking strictly the Africana right wing, they've, as you mentioned, they've been doing their work, right? This has gone to the White House, as you mentioned, uh, various lobby groups in Europe and so on. And I think there's something to be cautious about, right? But at the same time, I think that uh, there is a need to, to forge ahead um, and, and not pay too much attention to, to this kind of right-wing politics that's going on because the dynamics are a little bit different if you're talking South Africa in relation to global right-wing shifts. Mm. Uh, so I think we just need to keep that in mind. Thank you so much to my panel, Trevor Nguan, Dr. Trevor Nguane from the University of Johannesburg, Tasneem Esop, Associate Researcher at Wits University, and uh, Siatuma Piniza uh, from Political Economy Southern Africa. It's been a pleasure being with you this evening. Big thank you, Jola, and big thank you, Jaws, for putting together this great product, Bukobenubi Oxygen, and Mastetin Ngomsum.